So before we get started this evening, let's go ahead and have a few moments of silent prayer and make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the Word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you are the one who provides real security for us, and there's no security in the shifting sands of human circumstances, whether that involves the economy or whether that involves uh, military security, whether that involves just uh, security in our own lives from criminality or from some natural disaster. But our lives are in your hands, and we know that we can relax and trust you, and that when we do, you make our paths straight, and you are the one who protects us. And when these calamities come upon uh, different segments of the human race at different times, it gives us as believers an opportunity to fulfill our role as ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ and to uh, use those opportunities to uh, communicate the gospel to those who need to hear it and to provide the truth for them. And it is an opportunity for us to let our hope in you uh, be evident in our lives and our the fact that we are relaxed and confident and know that you are in control. Father, we pray that as we study this evening, you'll help us to understand these things and that as we uh, continue to understand the dynamics of what you have provided for us and our justification uh, as a foundation for our ongoing salvation in terms of our spiritual growth, that we would uh, see how this fits together and that we would have a clear picture of all that you are doing in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, one other reminder, encourage you to be here on Tuesday and Thursday night as uh, continue to uh, record Jude classes, recorded one yesterday, and uh, these classes, of course, will be beneficial for everyone. Uh, it's a great study to go through Jude and to think through some of the different things that are there, the implications of what Jude says, because in, in a lot of ways it's like Colossians. He's dealing with a church that is already under attack from false teachers and having to uh, deal with that situation of living in an apostate culture. So I don't know if you've noticed lately, but if you look around, we're living in an apostate culture. And so these kinds of things are always very on point for us in terms of the uh, application and, and implication. And then, of course, uh, Jim Myers will be here the first week I'm going to Israel in, um, in June, and so I know that we want to have a good attendance, and so we'll, we'll be here for that. Okay, let's go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and the topic that we're looking at in these uh, first five or six verses is understanding how the entire human race becomes guilty of sin. We all understand that Adam sinned, Eve ate from the fruit of the tree first, and her sin only affected her. But when Adam ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we are told that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for example, that in Adam all die. It's not in Eve, and that is not the result of some um, uh, paternalistic uh, writing of Scripture. It's not some uh, patriarchal interpretation of, uh, of the human race, it is because God, in the way he created the human race, created men first and then women. It's interesting that once you throw away the doctrine of creation, then you can start 
coming up with all kinds of theories as to who was created first and why one was created over the other. It's just all speculation, and people come up with different things just to fit their own social and political agendas. Because once you get away from any bedrock certainty, any kind of truth or revelation, then all you're basically doing is just making things up to fit the current, the current narrative. And that's exactly what happens in our postmodern uh, postmodern world and our postmodern environment. But the scripture teaches that it was Adam's sin that was determinative uh, because Adam was designated as the head of the race. So Adam sins, and not only does he come under the condemnation of that sin penalty uh, when he sins, but then as a result of his sin, all of his descendants are also judged guilty and receive that imputation. Now, some people say, well, that's not fair. Uh, that's a choice Adam made, but I would have made a different choice. Oh, really? Is that true? How do you know that? You know that for sure. You know, it's really an interesting thing. I was having a conversation with somebody today. It's really interesting to get us to think a little bit about uh, the fact that we can be sure something is happening, we can have a high level of certainty of some things being true, but that doesn't—that's not the same as something being a hundred percent true. And a lot of people confuse that. And I'll, I'll give, give you an example. The one we were talking about today is that God, the Holy Spirit, works in our lives in many ways. God, the Holy Spirit, works in our lives to bring to our consciousness uh, doctrines that we have learned to help us recall Scripture. Uh, God, the Holy Spirit, works in our lives in, um, in prodding us, maybe motivating us to witness to people. There are a lot of ways that the Holy Spirit works behind the scenes and brings things into our mind. But that's not just necessarily the Holy Spirit working internally. If you go back into the Old Testament, when uh, believers did not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and were never told that Nehemiah, Ever had the uh, ever had the uh, endowment of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Uh, there there are frequent statements made by Nehemiah in the book that and God put it on my heart too. God put it into my mind to do something, and so he attributes to God uh, bringing into his consciousness certain ideas and certain things, and that's not done through the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. Uh, that was just done through uh, some sort of sp- uh, special revelation. And, of course, we know special revelation isn't for today. But because we have the indwelling of the Spirit and because we have the filling of the Spirit and the, the Spirit is active in our sanctification, I can say with certainty that God the Holy Spirit brings doctrine to my mind. But when I'm driving down the road or I'm going through life and something happens, and uh, doctrines or promises or principles comes to, come to my mind, can I say with 100% certainty that that came to my mind as a result of the Holy Spirit, or did it come through the natural processes of the way our brain works, the way our mind works? Now, I want to give the Holy Spirit the benefit of the doubt, as most Christians do, but you can't answer that question with certainty because we don't know. There are many times when when uh, unbelievers 
have uh, they're they're very, many are very brilliant and their brain works just as well as uh, an unbeliever's in many cases and they're studying something and all of a sudden they get an insight because the brain is just so remarkable it's such a high speed intricate computer that all of a sudden it makes starts making connections and all the little pistons start firing off and lights go off and all of a sudden there's a, there's a fresh idea doesn't come from God, doesn't come from the Holy Spirit. It's just the way God built our brains to work. So people have insights, they have intuitive flashes, they have all these different things, and they're not believers. So how do you know when you have a memory, when you, something comes to your mind as a Christian, that at that particular instant, that particular thought, that particular promise at that moment, came from God the Holy Spirit. And I would challenge you to say, you don't. We know that generally he works that way, but we can't say that every time, for any specific incident, that that was the Holy Spirit who brought that into our mind. We had a good idea, and we wanted to do something. We had a a sense that we ought to do something. Uh, Unbelievers had that kind of thing, too. So we have to be very careful that we don't somehow shift. It's very easy for that kind of thing to become uh, a way in which people make decisions. They often say, well, you know, that's just a gut decision. And a gut decision often is just a combination of your life experiences, and and all of this has been processed for a period of 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and you've had certain experiences, and your brain is is processing everything that's going around uh, around you so quickly that you're not even aware of all the steps that are happening, and these ideas are firing off inside of your brain. And um, we we want to give credit to God, and that's that's great, it's wonderful, and we should. But I'm sure that the Holy Spirit has gotten credit for a number of things He hasn't done, and there's another word for that: the Holy Spirit has gotten blamed for a lot of things. He hasn't done, and so uh, that's the that's the path of mysticism. It's it's looking somewhere other than the authoritative word of God for truth and and, and for uh, and for answers. And so we we have to always go to the word to seek the answers to our questions, because the word's going to be clear, and we often have uh, have values and ideas and norms and standards in our soul that have been influenced by the world. And and one of the words that I really just vibrate over, and I've vibrated over it for years, and I don't vibrate quite as much, or maybe I've just managed to, you know, to suppress it in, in righteousness or something, uh, so that I keep it buried at the third basement level down, is when people start talking about being fair, our presidents talked about this several times lately. They want fairness. Fairness is a nebulous concept. If you really, they, we sometimes people say God is fair. What does that mean? Fair is a really wimpy word. Just, yeah. Now there's a word you can you can sink your teeth into. Righteous. Those are words that have real content and solid meaning. But fair. Fair often brings into it a lot of subjective baggage as to what we think should is somewhat equitable. 
and uh, and often today there are so many egalitarian ideas, and these are basically uh, influenced by communism that everybody ought to get the same results. Uh, fairness is not described as uh, understood as equal opportunity. Fairness is understood as equal results, and that no matter what our circumstances may be, we all ought to have the same chance to uh, make a lot of money and be uh, rich and famous as as Bill Gates or as some uh, Hollywood celebrity or somebody else. And, and often we never hear the backstory on so many people in terms of the struggles that they had in their own life and the difficulties that they overcame. We just see sort of the end results, and even with with uh, celebrities that had a certain advantages, not all, certainly not all of them did, but even with some that did have have certain advantages, we don't see all of the incredible hard work that goes into doing the 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 things that they do, whether they perform on stage or whether they are in music or whether they write or something like that. They still put a lot of effort into it. And that's why they are so successful and have the results that they do. The, the, I, this idea of fairness, especially when it applies to God, is it really is the slippery slope of bad theology. And, and we have to be careful with that. God is righteous, and that means that God is always going to do the right thing. Uh, God is just. He is always going to judge everybody by the same standard that is his standard of absolute uh, righteousness. So when we come to a text like this where we begin to learn that because Adam made a bad decision, a sinful decision, a disobedient decision, and that we bear the consequences for that, there are people that you will you will talk to who are unbelievers who will say, well, that's just not fair for me to be condemned or born spiritually dead because of something somebody else did. And so we ought to think a little bit in terms of how do we answer a question like that? How do we explain that to people? How do we get them to think that that through? And where do you think the best place would be to go in order to uh, understand that? Well, the best place to go is a place that Paul always goes whenever he starts explaining anything, and that's always to the character of God and the plan of God. We have to get go to understand who God is, and, and this is often the hidden assumption or presupposition that unbelievers have is they have a view of God that is so uh, anthropocentric, it's so man-centered. Basically, God is just a... Uh, 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 enlarged human. He has more capabilities than a human being. He's a little bit smarter in some cases than human beings. He has a little more uh, uh, power and ability than human beings, but he's basically just a large human being. And, and we have to disabuse the unbeliever of that because that's part of his truth suppression mechanism. And so uh, helping him to understand that, no, we have to think in terms of how God, how the Bible presents our understanding of God, that God is all-knowing and he is perfectly righteous, and so he can devise a plan for 
the human race that is going to be perfectly righteous but is going to take into account all circumstances. And so when God sets up Adam as the original human being and delegates that responsibility to him, that his decision would have consequences that would affect the entire uh, entirety of his of his progeny then then God knows that if any human being uh, any other human being were put in that position that uh, the same results would would uh, would take place and so that's what Paul is trying to explain here is the significance of this in relation to justification and what he's driving toward is verse 18. Verse 18, where he reaches this conclusion, he says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, that is, Adam's, uh, he, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men. So he set up this comparison and contrast through this section. To, and he's what, what is he driving to? What, there's uh, condemnation on the one hand with Adam. And then what's on the other side? The righteous act of Christ on the cross, which comes to all men, which results in justification. So we're right back to the topic that was at the heart of Romans 3 and Romans 4, which is justification. And then having come back to this, he talks in resulting in justification of life. Uh, re, and I think that would be, have the implication justification resulting in life. And then he uses that to raise the question in the next three verses in the first part of chapter 6. Well, in, if, if, Christ has done all of this, then what is the implication for us? The reason I'm saying that is it helps for us to see where we're driving to, that all this discussion that uh, I'm getting ready to get into in relation to trying to understand how Adam's sin is transmitted and passed on to the human race, that it is all important because it helps us to understand the, uh, the depths and the complexity of our, of our condemnation. Now, as I pointed out last time, that this section begins a comparison and contrast with uh, between Adam and Christ. It begins in verse 12, and then there is this break, and verses 13 through 17 basically uh, take us through a diversion to make sure we understand why all men can be condemned, and then he's going to come back to it in verse 18. So uh, verse 12 sets up the comparison and contrast. Verses 13 uh, and 14 are going to dis- show the contrast and the relation between sin and death. And then 15 through 17 are going to contrast Adam's sin with God's grace through Jesus Christ. And then in 18 and 19, we're going to connect Adam's sin and condemnation and uh, with Christ's obedience and justification. So the main question is, how does death spread to all men? Last time we went through the details of the exegesis of Romans uh, 5.12, and the opening is important because it does set up for us 
the direction that, uh, that, that Paul is going and how uh, this sort of break between the first, uh, the first verse and the other verses uh, comes along. In verse 12 he says, Therefore, uh, which uh, is literally for this reason, so he is going to describe the ground or the motive of the, or the cause of sin coming into the world. He then draws a comparison using the Greek word hospere, just as, uh, just as, and in um, uh, Greek grammar, when the Protestant is this first part of this comparison is set up and is introduced by Hosper, the um, apodosis is introduced by either the Greek word hutas, meaning this or thus and, but not kai hutas. So it's, word order is very important there, and that doesn't come into play until you get down to verse 18. So what Paul starts in is just as through one man's sin entered the world. Notice the order. First, sin enters the world, and then death enters the world. There's no death before sin. So first there's that sinful choice of disobedience, and then as a result of that, death comes into the world, and death then spreads to all men. And the term that is used here for men is anthropos, indicating all mankind, not just all, not all males. Death spread to all mankind, all human beings, because all sinned. So his, he concludes by saying that because all sin. So there is this intrinsic connection between, uh, between Adam and his sin and every single human being. Now there are a couple of different ways in which, uh, people have tried to explain this, but I think I put this up last week. We had about four observations. The reason for death is sin. The sin of one man enters the whole world. Third, the sin brings death not to only the one, but to the whole. And that these three aorist tense verb indicates that the entire race is viewed as sinning in Adam's one sin. So that every human being is participating in one way, in some way, in that sin, in a way that they are all guilty. So thus death spreads to all men. And that phrase is this uh, word kai hutos. Hutos is a, one of those fun little particles. There was a professor of Greek that began his instruction at Dallas Seminary back in the late 40s by the name of uh, Lewis Johnson, who was very well-known and loved professor of Greek. He got a little confused with hyper-Calvinism by the, late, by the 60s. And that created quite a turmoil when I was on campus because the man had great integrity and because he understood that this really wasn't the tradition of the school. He, actually I misspoke just saying he wasn't a hyper-Calvinist. That's a, people often misuse that term. He was just a, uh, a high Calvinist. A hyper-Calvinist doesn't believe you need to witness to anybody because, uh, if God had elected them, then they're going to, God's going to save them one way or the other, and you don't need to be involved. 
So uh, a hyper-Calvinist doesn't believe in evangelism or witnessing, whereas a high-Calvinist is just a five-point or uh, a Calvinist that has a very strong view of predestination and election. And uh, Dr. Johnson, though, taught Greek exegesis at Dallas Seminary for many years, and he used to say the most important elements in, in studying the Bible are not the big words like justification and reconciliation or redemption. They're the little words like the ands and the thuses and the therefores because that tells you how the big words relate to each other. And so that's what you what you really need to pay attention to. So this is one of those words that um, uh, that's important. He says, in the, and it's hutos usually indicates what comes. It looks forward to something. It's not saying thus in what I just said because of what I just said. It says and thus are in the the manner I'm now telling you uh, in this in this manner to follow. Death spread to all men because all sinned. So the manner, what he's saying is death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. And this expresses that idea very, very strongly that uh, sin is not uh, something that is individual but refers to a uh, position, or I mean, excuse me, a participation in Adam's sin in some way. Now, there are uh, two views. There's a five on this slide, but ignore that. There are two views on how this transmission occurred. Two views. Now, this is this gets uh, a little technical, but you need to learn this language because it helps you think. The first view is called seminalism. Seminalism. Now, seminalism was frequently associated with a, another theological view on the origin of the soul called traducianism. Okay, now there you've got two big words you can write down and go home and look up and don't necessarily trust the Wikipedia article you read. Uh, traducianism has that idea of uh, that that the soul as well as the body the the soul is, everything is transmitted through the act of human procreation now the first person to first theologian to coin the term uh, tra- and use the term tradition or traducere the latin word was uh, was a second century theologian by the name of tertullian Tertullian gave us another word that you use all the time without any difficulty, and if you use it with some of your neighbors, they would think you were just a very complex theologian, and that's the word trinity. Because he coined this term trinitas from the Latin trinitas to express the idea that God is one but also three at the same time. He is not three distinct uh, essences in persons. He is one in essence, but three in person. And he also had this idea of, of uh, traditionism that the human soul is transmitted through the human act of procreation. Now, actually, the Roman Catholic, many people think that's the foundation for, uh, for why Christians should be against abortion. Because it is through human procreation that the soul is, is passed on. But actually another Roman Catholic theologian by the name of Thomas Aquinas 
who is considered the most uh, authoritative theologian in, in Roman Catholicism, uh, Aquinas wrote that to think that the soul, which is immaterial, he believed it was immaterial, that the soul is transmitted through the semen is heresy. I catch that. Aquinas said to think that the soul is transmitted through the semen is heresy. Now, Tertullian believed that because Tertullian had a materialist view of the soul. Now, think about that just a little bit. Uh, we, we get all caught up at this, at this uh, uh, sort of superficial, or uh, I'll use a better word, a surface level in this debate over abortion. And abortion rights and whether, what kind of life is in the womb. And in the Christian church, often people have, they're not well taught theologically. They've never worked their way through any of these early medieval debates, uh, among very learned theologians in, in, in working through these ideas. But in, in, um, uh, in traditionism, this idea was that soul gets transmitted through procreation, but it comes from a man who believed that the soul was material. Since ideas have consequences, the idea that the soul can be transmitted materially is inherently related to the uh, idea that the soul is material. So how can we separate? Can we separate the conclusion that the soul is transmitted materially from its presupposition that the soul is immaterial. I don't think we can. But that's that's one view. That is called traditionism. And traditionism uh, historically has been associated with a view called seminalism. And you can hear the the uh, uh, the, the root word here of uh, seminal, uh, semen, the word for seed. And so it is the idea that that, that there is a physical genetic transmission. And so seminalism is the view that the entire human race, body and soul, was genetically present in Adam. Thus God considered every human being to be physically participating in Adam's original sin and thus receiving the same penalty. Okay? So that's that's this view. Now that's a very prominent view among uh, a large number of theologians down through history, that every human being is somehow physically present. Now they don't just come up with this in abstraction. This is not just some philosophical idea that they dream up. They have a text that they go to in order to prove this, and the text is in Hebrews chapter seven, verse nine, and Hebrews chapter seven, verse nine is a verse that is in the context of uh, the writer of Hebrews talking about the superiority of the Melchizedekian priesthood over the Levitical priesthood. And the writer of Hebrews is going to give a very sophisticated argument, and he's going to say that the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior because Abraham, in whose loins Levi was, paid tithes to Melchizedek. Interesting argument. He's, he's, Melchizedek, if you remember, is the priest king of 
this little town called Salem. That's the short form of Jerusalem or Jerusalem. And he is the priest king of Salem, and Jewish tradition going back to pre-New Testament times, going back as to early literature in the uh, three, four, five centuries before Christ, there's, uh, and I don't know if this is true or not, I'm just saying it's fascinating, they believe that Melchizedek was Shem, the son of Noah. And if you work out a timeline based on the age numbers, you will discover that Shem would not have died until Abraham was 150 years old. And so Shem had been along, uh, uh, Shem was, could very possibly, well, very possibly he was, he was still alive when Abraham lived. And so the, uh, supposition is that this would indicate sort of a, uh, passing of the baton from the spiritual leader of the Noahic generation and the last of the, uh, last of the line in the dispensation of, of, uh, uh, the dispensation of human conscience to passing the baton to Abraham as God is shifting gears from the Gentiles prior to Abraham to working exclusively through uh, through the Abrahamic line. So Melchizedek is this somewhat mysterious figure that uh, we're not told anything about in Genesis. It's uh, after uh, after Abraham. Uh, defeats the uh, army of the kings that has invaded down through uh, the area of the Levant, that through Canaan where Abraham lives, and he's defeated the Sodomites and the and Gomorrah and all of those, captured everybody, including Lot and his family, taken them as slaves and all this booty. Then Abraham goes off, takes his, his servants with him, uh, 120 servants with him and some others, and they chase down these... Um, uh, this army, and they defeat them and rescue the captives and recover all of the booty. And from all of the plunder that they've recovered, he gives 10% to Melchizedek, the king priest of Salem. That's the incident here. That's why it's talking about tithes, one-tenth of what was recovered. So the writer of Hebrews comes to verse uh, Hebrews 7, 9 and says, Even Levi who receives tithes. Now, he's talking about not just the person of Levi, so he's clearly talking about an individual who is the head of a rep, of a line. Uh, because at the first century, as you would go to the, at the temple, you're going to give your tithe to a priest. That priest is from the tribe of Levi. So the writer of Hebrews says you're paying a tithe to Levi. He's being uh, through his descendant. So he says, even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. Now, that's an important phrase at the end of that verse, so to speak. He's not talking literally. It, it is in a, literally in the he, excuse me, literally in the Greek, it is in a manner of speaking or in a way of speaking. He's just using this as a metaphorical, uh, analogy. So he says, um, uh, for, to explain, he says, for he, that is Levi, this is in verse 10, for he was still in the loins of his father. Now that's the phrase that we're looking at. That's the key phrase that they go to. He was still in the loins of his father 
when Melchizedek met him. Now, the only way he could be in the loins of his father was in a genetic way. He's genetically there because he is genetically linked in a direct line to his great-grandfather, Abraham. So Melchizedek uh, is paid because Abraham sees Melchizedek as a higher spiritual authority. Since Levi descended from Melchizedek, I mean from Abraham, Levi couldn't be any higher, any greater than, than Abraham. So therefore, Levi's priesthood could not be of a higher order than Melchizedek's priesthood. So he is, is arguing this, and so there is a, it's based on a genetic line between Abraham and Levi. So the theological conclusion is that God uh, considers every human being to be physically participating in the actions of their forefathers because of this genetic connection. So they would be genetically present. Okay, that's a view of seminalism. So there's some foundation for that in, in the scriptural text. Now, the other view is a view called federalism. Federalism. It's where we, it's using the same language, the same uh, vocabulary that we use when we talk about the federal government as opposed to a government of a confederacy. So a federal government is talking about one that is a representative government. We have a federal democracy. We have a representative democracy. We don't act like the citizens of Athens did in the 5th century B.C. and have everybody go vote on everything. We elect representatives. Those representatives go to Washington, D.C., and those representatives who are voting in our place are voting for laws, and that vote for that law is our vote. You like that? How good's your congressman doing? Is he voting the way you would vote? That's a good thing to say in this election year. Um, so God, uh, uh, so federalism is the view that Adam stood as the head, the designated head and representative of the entire human race, and that Adam's decisions were on behalf of all of his descendants, all of humanity. God viewed Adam's sin as the act of all people through representation, and thus Adam's penalty is judicially imputed to all mankind. Uh, This view is most consistently linked to the creationist view of the origin and transmission of the soul. Now, the creation, when I use the word creationist here, this is really going to confuse you because it confuses everybody. This is not talking about creationism versus evolution as the word is used in discussions of Genesis 1. In theology, this term was used to describe a view of how the the soul came into existence. There was the Platonic view that that a soul is is a pre-existent. That's the same view that you have in Mormonism. And that, uh, uh, for example, in Mormonism, uh, there's a view that all, all these souls pre-exist and they just keep getting kind of recycled. Uh, it's not a p- true reincarnation view, so don't push it that far. But, for example, in, uh, 
And and in Mormon theology, there's the view that all of the souls of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Monroe, Franklin, all of the founding fathers of the United States were these little pre-existent founding father souls. And that and they always use the phrase they use the phrase God the Father, but it sounds funny when it comes out of their mouth. Uh, because this is Elohim, who is not the Elohim of the Bible. They just borrow that name, which is a generic term for God. And remember, Elohim, God the Father, is the father of Jesus and Lucifer, because they're brothers. And uh, so God the Father then, in their view, sent those founding father souls to inhabit those little babies that came along at that time and with the mission to create the United States. And that as a result of that, what they wrote in terms of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, what they wrote was divinely inspired. Not divinely inspired like we talk about, well, Shakespearean plays are inspired. Not inspired like we listen to Mozart and he had this flash of musical genius and boom, he writes something out or... or, or uh, Handel, who wrote uh, the, uh, the Messiah, forget how quickly he wrote it, but he conceived of this in, in, in like uh, in one flash, just about, and then he went and wrote it in just a just a fever pitch of, of activity over a very short time. We're not talking about that kind of inspiration. Uh, we're talking in the Mormon view. We're talking about a view of inspiration that is more akin to our view of divine inspiration of scripture, but it really doesn't go quite that far. But you will hear people like Glenn Beck talk about, well, that, that the founding documents are truly inspired. Make sure you understand what he just said, because what he said isn't what many people hear, because they hear him saying something like, uh, like uh, uh, Shakespeare was inspired or Mozart was inspired or something like that. That's not what he is saying because of his his Mormon theology. And so it kind of helps to understand those things. So that was the Platonic view that filters out in some different ideas that there's a pre-incarnate soul that gets then placed in different bodies. Then there's the uh, seminal view or the tradition view that I mentioned a minute ago, that the soul is material and gets transmitted through physical procreation. Then there's the third view, and that's what's called the creationist view, that with when uh, whenever a new human life develops inside of the womb, it is God who immediately and simultane- immediately creates and simultaneously imparts and places that immaterial soul inside of the uh, of the newborn baby uh, when that baby takes its first breath, which is what the Hebrew said was neshma uh, in the he- Hebrew phrase, the breath of life. And so uh, that creationist view is a is a view that's been around forever and ever. Now, some theologians and people, because of the hot debate topic of, of, of abortion, um, decided to flip-flop on their view of, of uh, the origin of the soul back when this got real hot in the early 70s and late 60s, not on the basis of exegesis, but on the basis of experience, what was going on legally. They didn't want to be on the side of of the pro-abortionists, the the 
uh, pro-choice crowd, the pro-abortionist crowd. And the thing is that, that the uh, federal and creationist view do not justify abortion, although some people are, tried to argue that way or make it sound that way, uh, because the God is involved intimately in the uh, production of the physical uh, part of man from conception on, uh, what is going on inside the womb is, under normal circumstances, going to be a full human being that, uh, that no one has the right to interfere with that normative process. That's called the nascent life view. And some years ago I taught on this and quoted from uh, one encyclopedia of Judaism that I have, which is exactly the primary rabbinical view on the origin and transmission of the soul, that God uh, creates it and imparts it at birth, but no one has the right to interfere with the gestation process because what is the process is inevitably going to end up with a human being and no one has the right to, uh, to interfere. So there's not a connection necessarily between or inherently between uh, the federal view, the creationist view, and a view on, on abortion. So this is the federalism view. Now let's get in, dig into this just a little deeper. With, uh, put this chart in here. You, uh, I'm going to give you four views. The views are listed in the left-hand column. In this chart, we have the Pelagian view and the Arminian view. And then in this chart, we have the, uh, the bottom half of the chart as the federal view and the Augustinian view. These are the historical uh, designations uh, of these views. Now, the Pelagian view. Pelagius was a British monk who lived in the uh, late 300s, uh, or excuse me, late 400s, uh, at the same time as August, uh, Augustine, Protestants call him Augustine, Catholics call him Augustine. I went to a Protestant seminary in a Catholic school, and I pronounce it one way in one sentence and another way in the other sentence, so I'm just all confused. But Pelagius, Pelagius believed that every hu- individual human being is, is created and born with the same same innocence of Adam the day he was created. There's no taint from Adam on any human being. They all come out of the womb pure and innocent and able to make perfect decisions for the rest of their life. That was Pelagianism. And, and uh, Augustine, rightly so, just pounced all over him, and he was declared a heretic. So their view, his view was, and the Pelagian view was, that people incur death when they sin after Adam's example. That's what I said. I always ask that little question because it's kind of a brain twister. Do you sin because you're a sinner, or are you a sinner because you sin? For Pelagius, you're a sinner because you sin. But for uh, Biblicists, you uh, you, you sin because you're a sinner. We're born with that sin nature, and as a result of that, we sin. But for Pelagius, people people don't come under the condemnation of sin until they actually sin. They're, they, they're condemned for their sin. And um, Adam's sin affected only Adam. 
no one else in the human race is affected by Adam's sin. And modern adherents of this view are basically your Unitarians, your very liberal, uh, that is in terms of theology, your very liberal uh, Christian denominations, uh, Unitarians. And uh, the Roman Catholic view is what's called a semi-Pelagian uh, view. Uh, the Arminian view, Arminius, James Arminius or <coughs> Jacobus Arminius was the uh, opponent of Calvinists, not Calvin. Calvin was long dead by the time Arminius came along. Uh, Arminius was actually the disciple of a, of a Dutch theologian by the name of Derek von Kornhurt. And uh, Arminius was teaching... Uh, and if you read what what he said, he doesn't sound that different from Calvin, but he kind of got pushed as as what what happens when there's a heated emotional debate. People polarize and begin to move in positions they didn't originally hold. And Arminius said that all people consent to Adam's sin, then sin is imputed. So uh, this this view really puts a lot of uh, again man has a has a very high view of human ability. Uh, for them, for Arminian positions, Adam sinned and and his sin partially affected humanity. The difference is for for Arminians, you're sick, you're not dead. You're sick, you're not spiritually dead. You still can do some good things that God can give you credit for. Uh, depravity for them is not total. People receive cor- a corrupt nature from Adam, but they're, it's, they're not guilt. They don't receive guilt or culpability for Adam's sin. And this would be most of your Methodists. Wesley held this view. So those who came out of a Wesleyan tradition, Methodists, uh, Pentecost- Holiness, Pentecostals, these all tend to have, a, a, have an Arminian view. The federal view is that sin is imputed to humanity because of Adam's sin. Adam sins, and that is imputed legally to all those he represented, the entire human race. Uh, Their view is that Adam alone sinned, but the human race, the whole human race, was affected. Depravity is total in the sense that every aspect of human, the human soul and body is corrupted by sin. doesn't mean you're as evil as you can be. It's just that every part of us has been affected by, by sin and, and sin's corruption. And in the, uh, the federal view, sin and guilt are imputed. This would be uh, Presbyterians and others holding to a covenant theology. Now, you sit there and you say, well, we're not Presbyterians and we don't hold the covenant theology. But we are in that tradition. If you look at the historical line that comes down from, from the Reformation, it starts with, with this, this shift in the 1500s to sola scriptura, the scripture alone, justification by faith alone. You, you track this down through the 1600s and 1700s to early 1800s, and you end up with a guy named John Nelson Darby, who was an Anglican. And the Anglican uh, confession or doctrinal statement at that point was uh, very reformed, very, uh, most, mostly covenant theology. Uh, he, 
he says that's not consistent with our foundational theology and beliefs in, in a literal interpretation of Scripture. Somehow he, he understands that by the end of the 1600s or, or mid-1600s, Calvin's theology became sort of, uh, of calcified. It hardened in, into stone with no more development. See, this is always the problem when you get somebody who comes along who is, is brilliant in theology and they make various uh, uh, new insights and, and then everybody just wants to stop and say, oh, that was it, that, that was the end. He was the greatest thing to come along since sliced bread and so we're going to stop here and just worship at his feet, which is what they do with every great theologian that's come down the pike rather than building and developing on that. So later on, when, pe- when people like Darby, later Schofield, uh, Lewis Berry Chafer, Walbert, and almost all of those men I just mentioned were ordained Presbyterians. Lewis Berry Chafer was ordained in the uh, uh, Northern Presbytery that had it shifted to the Southern Presbytery, and they brought him up on heresy charges in 1928 because he was a dispensationalist. Uh, John Walford was a uh, ordained Presbyterian uh, pastor of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Fort Worth, Texas, where the greatest elder he ever had was a man named Bob Thiem. Walford told that to me in his office one day. It was a Presbyterian church, and John Walford Sprinkle baptized every one of his children. Lewis Berry Chafer didn't have any children, so he didn't sprinkle baptize them, but he was, he was an ordained Presbyterian. So we come out of a heavy, heavy Presbyterian background in, in our theological tradition. And so from that, there is an emphasis on this, this federal view. And then there's the Augustinian view, uh, which is the view that sin is imputed to humanity because of Adam's sin. Uh, humanity sinned in Adam. Uh, depravity is total. Sin and guilt are imputed. It's not a, hugely different from the federal view, but the federal view has certain uh, secondary attributes to it that fit it to covenant theology, which I'm not going to go into. And the Augustinian view basically is a view that gets adopted by uh, many of the reformers and uh, later, later, later Calvinists. So we, what you see here is that, that the seminal view tends to show up among the Pelagians and the Arminians. But the reality, and, and so there's this polarization over this theology between these two views. But the reality is there's elements of truth in both views. So it's not either or. It's both and. Uh, but what's, what, what do you keep from both and what do you throw away with both? Well, in the, in the uh, seminal view, in the seminal view, we have this, this genetic connection with the entire human race. Now, that's important because that means that just as Adam's sin has a physical, biological connection to every single human being, and that affects the transmission of the sin nature, that it means that Jesus Christ, who is also born fully human, has that same genetic connection to every human being. 
There's another creation that's important to to think about in connection with this, and that's the angelic creation. God created every angel individually. That's why they're called sons of God. God creates every individual, every angel individually and directly. He did not create mama and daddy angels, and they didn't have little baby angels. I don't care what Michelangelo drew on the Sistine Chapel ceiling. Okay, cherubs are not little baby babies that have wings, and there are no baby angels. Okay, that is uh, all angels are directly created. Now, God can't provide a salvation for the angels related to a substitutionary atonement because there's no organic connection between the angels. There's an organic connection between every one of us and Jesus Christ because he's fully human. So he can die as our substitute. Now, that's a, that's important because that, that recognizes that, that there is an aspect where there is a physical genetic link to all human beings. But the other side is true also. The Bible talks, the, the whole idea of federalism, of a representative that pays or performs some action for which the guilt is transmitted or pays the penalty is at the core of all substitutionary sacrifices. From the sacrifice in the Old Testament where they sacrifice the uh, scapegoat and the priest puts his hand on the on the goat and recites the sins of the nation. And then that, that one goat is slaughtered and then he, he has his hands on both goats and the other goat is taken out in the wilderness. There's no organic connection between, you know, Aaron and the, and the goat. There's a representative relationship. So that's the federal headship idea. And so this allows uh, Adam to be the federal head who represents the entire human race. And it is in that representative capacity that the guilt of his sin is the guilt of all. And on the other hand, because of his uh, the physical connection through the transmission of the physical body, uh, and DNA that is corrupted by sin, we have the transmission physically of the sin nature and that uh, capacity and propensity to sin that we all receive. We receive from, from conception a body that is corrupted by sin. And so this helps explain both aspects. So rather than going either or, if we cut the Gordian knot, so to speak, and uh, splice it together, we have a much clearer understanding in Scripture. And then we don't have to throw out uh, scriptural support as a holding to this form of federal representative. I don't have any problem with Hebrews 7.9. fits perfectly with my views. Uh, if I hold to the literal nature of Hebrews 7.9, I don't have a problem with Romans 5.12. So it solves solves the problems. But it's not a pure federal theology because it doesn't necessitate the other dimensions of, of uh, federal covenant uh, theology. I mentioned earlier, and I'm not going to get into it, but you see on, just on the chart that, that reform, on the bottom line, the Augustinian view, reformers and later Calvinists hold to a covenant theology, just like the... Uh, the line above, the Presbyterians. 
They, they still hold to a covenant theology, but it's not a federal form of that covenant theology. So there's not an inherent connection, is what I'm saying, between federalism and covenant theology. So you can split them apart and hold to some aspects of the federal view uh, and put that together with uh, with the uh, seminal and uh, uh, the seminal view, and of course not not the tradition view. So we need to then address these four questions: What is sin? What's the penalty of sin? What's the sin nature's relationship to the corporeal human body? And how is this passed on? Some of that I've already answered. Sin is separation from God. I mean, sin is disobedience to anything in God's character. The penalty for sin is that judicial penalty of spiritual death that is separation from God. Other forms of death are the consequence of that. That happens instantly when Adam sinned, and all the other forms of physical death, sexual death, positional death, carnal death, temporal death, all these other things, eternal death, are all the result of that one spiritual death. And it's passed on genetically through the sin nature, but then that sin nature receives the imputation of Adam's original sin in terms of the guilt at the instant of birth. Now, I'll cover that again when, when I get back uh, from Israel. So I'll be leaving for Israel. At, um, I couldn't believe this. I used this phrase on somebody the other day, and they said, well, I've never heard that. I'll be leaving at dark 30 in the morning. You know what that means, Jeff? Early, early, yes. I'll be leaving uh, long before the sun comes up and uh, flying up to uh, Newark and then through Newark on to uh, Tel Aviv and get there about 9 o'clock Saturday morning, which would be 1 a.m. here, and um, then have a full day in, in Jerusalem. And the, I got an itinerary today, and the trip looks uh, pretty interesting. A lot of, uh, lot of briefings, a uh, lot of interesting things. So I will give you a report when I get back. Somebody said, well, you're going to be traveling all day that Saturday before church. You're going to be worn out. You want to, When are you going to study? I said, well, let me see. I have 13 hours in the plane from Tel Aviv to New York. I ought to come up with something, and I'm going to learn a whole lot next week. I might have something to say, at least 15 or 20 minutes, and then we can go home. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to have our thinking challenged uh, as we try to understand the whole complexities of how sin is transmitted. Sin, The guilt of sin is then uh, uh, passed on to the entire human race in a way that is totally consistent with your righteousness and your justice. And Father, we pray that as we think about these things, we may also recognize that your salvation was so so complex and so magnificent that it overcame and solved all of the problems, all of the guilt that comes as a result of Adam's original sin. Father, we pray that this would just stimulate us to greater gratitude and, um, and obedience as we study your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.